Section twenty one of the Underground Railroad Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Underground Railroad Part One by William Still. Section twenty one. Trial of the Emancipators of Colonel J. H. Wheeler's Slaves jane johnson and her two little boys part two the mystery alluded to which the above letter did not contain and which the court failed to make mr williamson reveal might have been truthfully explained in these words the carriage was procured at the wharf while colonel wheeler and mr williamson were debating the question relative to the action of the committee and at that instant jane and her two boys were invited into it and accompanied by the writer who procured it were driven down town and on tenth street below lombard the inmates were invited out of it and the said conductor paid the driver and discharged him for prudential reasons he took them to a temporary resting place where they could tarry until after dark then they were invited to his own residence where they were made welcome and in due time forwarded east now what disposition was made of them after they had left the wharf while williamson and wheeler were discussing matters as was clearly sworn to by passmore in his answer to the writ of habeas corpus he williamson did not know that evening before seeing the member of the committee with whom he acted in concert on the boat and who had entire charge of jane and her boys he left for harrisburg to fulfil business engagements the next morning his father thomas williamson brought the writ of habeas corpus which had been served at passmore's office after he left to the anti-slavery office in his calm manner he handed it to the writer at the same time remarking that passmore had gone to harrisburg and added that he had better attend to it the writ edward hopper esq was applied to with the writ and in the absence of mr williamson appeared before the court and stated that the writ had not been served as mr w was out of town etc after this statement the judge postponed further action until the next day in the meanwhile mr williamson returned and found the writ awaiting him and an agitated state of feeling throughout the city besides now it is very certain that he did not seek to know from those in the secret where jane johnson and her boys were taken after they left the wharf or as to what disposition had been made of them in any way except to ask simply are they safe and when told yes he smiled consequently he might have been examined for a week by the most skilful lawyer at the philadelphia bar but he could not have answered other than he did in making his return to the writ before judge kane namely that the persons named in the writ nor either of them are now nor was at the time of issuing of the writ or the original writ or at any other time in the custody power or possession of the respondent nor by him confined or restrained wherefore he cannot have the bodies etc thus while mr w was subjected to the severest trial of his devotion to freedom his noble bearing throughout won for him the admiration and sympathy of the friends of humanity and liberty throughout the entire land and in proof of his fidelity he most cheerfully submitted to imprisonment rather than desert his principles but the truth was not wanted in this instance by the enemies of freedom obedience to slavery was demanded to satisfy the south 
the opportunity seemed favourable for teaching abolitionists and negroes that they had no right to interfere with a chivalrous southern gentleman while passing through philadelphia with his slaves thus to make an effective blow all the pro-slavery elements of philadelphia were brought into action and matters looked for a time as though slavery in this instance would have everything its own way passmore was locked up in prison on the flimsy pretext of contempt of court and true bills were found against him and half a dozen coloured men charging them with riot forcible abduction and assault and battery and there was no lack of hard swearing on the part of colonel wheeler and his pro-slavery sympathisers in substantiation of these grave charges but the pro-slaveryites had counted without their host passmore would not yield an inch but stood as firmly by his principles in prison as he did on the boat indeed it was soon evident that his resolute course was bringing floods of sympathy from the ablest and best minds throughout the north on the other hand the occasion was rapidly awakening thousands daily who had hitherto manifested little or no interest at all on the subject to the wrongs of the slave it was soon discovered by the chivalry that keeping mr williamson in prison would indirectly greatly aid the cause of freedom that every day he remained would make numerous converts to the cause of liberty that mr williamson was doing tenfold more in prison for the cause of universal liberty than he could possibly do while pursuing his ordinary vocation with regard to the coloured men under bonds colonel wheeler and his satellites felt very confident that there was no room for them to escape they must have had reason so to think judging from the hard swearing they did before the committing magistrate consequently in the order of events while passmore was still in prison receiving visits from hosts of friends and letters of sympathy from all parts of the north william still william curtis james p braddock john ballard james martin and isaiah moore were brought into court for trial the first name on the list of the proceedings of the court was called up first against this individual it was pretty well understood by the friends of the slave that no lack of pains and false swearing could be resorted to on the part of wheeler and his witnesses to gain a verdict mr mckim and other noted abolitionists managing the defence were equally alive to the importance of overwhelming the enemy in this particular issue the honourable charles gibbons was engaged to defend william still and william s pierce esq and william b burney esq the other five coloured defendants in order to make the victory complete the anti-slavery friends deemed it of the highest importance to have jane johnson in court to face her master and under oath to sweep away his refuge of lies with regard to her being abducted and her unwillingness to leave her master etc so mr mckim and the friends very privately arranged to have jane johnson on hand at the opening of the defence mrs lucretia mott mrs mckim miss sarah pugh and mrs plumley volunteered to accompany this poor slave mother to the courthouse and to occupy seats by her side while she should face her master and boldly on oath contradict all his hard swearing a better subject for the occasion than jane could not have been desired she entered the courtroom veiled and of course was not known by the crowd as pains had been taken to keep the public in ignorance of the fact that she was to be brought on to bear witness so that at the conclusion of the second witness on the part of the defence jane johnson was called for in a shrill voice 
Deliberately, Jane arose and answered, in a ladylike manner, to her name, and was then the observed of all observers. Never before had such a scene been witnessed in Philadelphia. It was indescribable. Substantially, her testimony on this occasion was in keeping with the subjoined affidavit, which was as follows. State of New York, City and County of New York. Jane Johnson, being sworn, makes oath and says, My name is Jane, Jane Johnson. I was the slave of Mr. Wheeler of Washington. He bought me and my two children about two years ago, of Mr. Cornelius Crew of Richmond, Virginia. My youngest child is between six and seven years old, the other between ten and eleven. I have one other child only, and he is in Richmond. I have not seen him for about two years, never expect to see him again. Mr. Wheeler brought me and my two children to Philadelphia, on the way to Nicaragua, to wait on his wife. I didn't want to go without my two children, and he consented to take them. We came to Philadelphia by the cars, stopped at Mr. Sully's, Mr. Wheeler's father-in-law, a few moments, then went to the steamboat for New York at two o'clock, but were too late. We went to the Blood Goods Hotel. Mr. Wheeler went to dinner. Mr. Wheeler had told me in Washington to have nothing to say to colored persons, and if any of them spoke to me, to say I was a free woman traveling with a minister. We stayed at Blood Goods till five o'clock. Mr. Wheeler kept his eye on me all the time except when he was at dinner. He left his dinner to come and see if I was safe, and then went back again. While he was at dinner, I saw a colored woman, and told her I was a slave woman, that my master had told me not to speak to colored people, and that if any of them spoke to me, to say that I was free. But I am not free. But I want to be free. She said, Poor thing, I pity you. After that, I saw a colored man and said the same thing to him. He said he would telegraph to New York, and two men would meet me at nine o'clock and take me with them. After that, we went on board the boat. Mr. Wheeler sat beside me on the deck. I saw a colored gentleman come on board. He beckoned to me. I nodded my head and could not go. Mr. Wheeler was beside me, and I was afraid. A white gentleman then came and said to Mr. Wheeler, I want to speak to your servant and tell her of her rights. Mr. Wheeler rose and said, If you have anything to say, say it to me. She knows her rights. The white gentleman asked me if I wanted to be free. I said, I do, but I belong to this gentleman, and I can't have it. He replied, Yes, you can. Come with us. You are as free as your master. If you want your freedom, come now. If you go back to Washington, you may never get it. I rose to go. Mr. Wheeler spoke and said, I will give you your freedom. But he had never promised it before, and I knew he would never give it to me. The white gentleman held out his hand, and I went toward him. I was ready for the word before it was given me. I took my children by the hands, who both cried, for they were frightened, but both stopped when they got on shore. A colored man carried the little one. I led the other by the hand. We walked down the street till we got to a hack. Nobody forced me away. Nobody pulled me, and nobody led me. I went away of my own free will. I always wished to be free, and meant to be free, when I came north. I hardly expected it in Philadelphia, but I thought I should get free in New York. I have been comfortable and happy since I left Mr. Wheeler, and so are the children. 
I don't want to go back. I could have gone in Philadelphia if I had wanted to. I could go now, but I had rather die than go back. I wish to make this statement before a magistrate, because I understand that Mr. Williamson is in prison on my account, and I hope the truth may be of benefit to him. Jane, her ex-mark, Johnson. It might have been supposed that her honest and straightforward testimony would have been sufficient to cause even the most relentless slaveholder to abandon at once a pursuit so monstrous and utterly hopeless as Wheeler's was. But although he was sadly confused and put to shame, he hung on to the lost cause tenaciously, and his counsel, David Webster Esquire, and the United States District Attorney Van Dyke, completely imbued with the pro-slavery spirit, were equally as unyielding. And thus, with a zeal befitting the most worthy object imaginable, they laboured with untiring effort to convict the coloured men. By this policy, however, the counsel for the defence was doubly aroused. Mr. Gibbons, in the most eloquent and indignant strains, perfectly annihilated the distinguished Colonel John H. Wheeler, United States Minister Plenipotentiary, near the island of Nicaragua, taking special pains to ring the changes repeatedly on his long appellations. Mr. Gibbons appeared to be precisely in the right mood to make himself surpassingly forcible and eloquent on whatever point of law he chose to touch bearing on the case, or in whatever direction he chose to glance at the injustice and cruelty of the South. Most vividly did he draw the contrast between the states of Georgia and Pennsylvania with regard to the atrocious laws of Georgia. Scarcely less vivid is the impression after a lapse of sixteen years than when this eloquent speech was made. With the district attorney, William B. Mann, Esquire, and his honour, Judge Kelly, the defendants had no cause to complain. Throughout the entire proceedings, they had reason to feel that neither of these officials sympathised in the least with Wheeler or slavery. Indeed, the judge's charge, and also in the district attorney's closing speech, the ring of freedom could be distinctly heard much more so than was agreeable to Wheeler and his pro-slavery sympathizers. The case of William Still ended in his acquittal. The other five colored men were taken up in order, and it is scarcely necessary to say that Messrs. Pierce and Burney did full justice to all concerned. Mr. Pierce especially was one of the oldest, ablest, and most faithful lawyers to the slave of the Philadelphia Bar. He never was known, it may safely be said, to hesitate in the darkest days of slavery, to give his time and talents to the fugitive, even in the most hopeless cases, and when, from the unpopularity of such a course, serious sacrifices would be likely to result. Consequently, he was but at home in this case, and most nobly did he defend his clients, with the same earnestness that a man would defend his fireside against the approach of burglars. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty as to all the persons in the first count, charging them with riot. On the second count, charging them with assault and battery on Colonel Wheeler, Ballard and Curtis were found guilty, the rest not guilty. The guilty were given about a week in jail. Thus ended this act in the Wheeler drama. The following extract is taken from the correspondent of the New York Tribune, touching Jane Johnson's presence in the court, and will be interesting on that account. But it was a bold and perilous move on the part of her friends, and the deepest apprehensions were felt for a while for the result. 
The United States Marshal was there with his warrant and his extra force to execute it. The officers of the court and other state officers were there to protect the witness and vindicate the laws of the state. Van Dyke, the United States District Attorney, swore he would take her. The state officers swore he should not, and for a while it seemed that nothing could avert a bloody scene. It was expected that the conflict would take place at the door when she would leave the room, so that when she and her friends went out, and for some time after, the most intense suspense pervaded the courtroom. She was, however, allowed to enter the carriage that awaited her without disturbance. She was accompanied by Mr. McKim, secretary of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, Lucretia Mott, and George Corson, one of our most manly and intrepid police officers. The carriage was followed by another, filled with officers as a guard, and thus escorted she was taken back in safety to the house from which she had been brought. Her title to freedom under the laws of the state will hardly again be brought into question. Mr. Williamson was committed to prison by Judge Kane for contempt of court on the 27th day of July, 1855, and was released on the 3rd day of November the same year, having gained, in the estimation of the Friends of Freedom everywhere, a triumph and a fame which but few men in the great moral battle for freedom could claim. End of section 21